Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We are here today with Dexter Diaz to talk about how to raise more compassionate teenagers. Dexter is a barrister and Queen's counsel, and he's been involved in some of the biggest cases of recent years involving human rights, murder, terrorism, crimes against humanity, and genocide. He's a prize-winning scholar of Cambridge University. He's held a visiting research residency at Harvard. He's written reports to the United Nations, briefed the UN's special rapporteur on violence against women and girls, and advised parliaments in both the Commons and Lords. We're speaking with Dexter today about ideas from his book, The Ten Types of Human, Who We Are and Who We Can Be. We're going to dive into the depths of the human psyche and look at a series of apps that humans all have kind of pre-installed in our brain that run just like apps on a phone. When we understand how these different modules of the brain work, then we can start to understand a lot of behavior that seems to be really difficult to wrap our heads around. Ultimately, this is going to help us become more connected with others, more compassionate, and raise teenagers who are engaged, who care about the world, and who want to make a positive difference. Really looking forward to talking about all that and more. Dexter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I read this book of yours, The Ten Types of Human, and you spent a lot of time on this book. Man, this thing is so comprehensive, deals with such deep um, matters of the human psyche and research. You've been traveling all over and finding interesting stories and collecting really, really a lot of interesting stuff. I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit about where this came from or what set you off on this journey and what was the impetus? Sure. Andy, thanks so much for inviting me on, firstly. Yeah, the book is is quite big. My mother said, Dexter, next time write a short book, will you? She actually said in her 80s now, so it hurts my hand to hold the book and read it. So that's <laughs> But anyway, well, you know what? It didn't start as a book. That's the first thing to say. You know, so I'm essentially a lawyer, I'm a human rights lawyer in the UK. And I was uh, on a research sabbatical in the States, uh, in Boston, at Harvard. And my research, I'm very interested in this sort of, this interface between human rights, which is my field, and human psychology. So I was actually at the Department of Psychology at Harvard, the famous mm. Department of Psychology. And it's a very cool place. And while I was doing my research, they had a whiteboard in, in my 
room on the 14th floor overlooking Harvard Yard all the way to Boston and the Atlantic Ocean. It's a fantastic view. And one evening, I was just writing out the particular types of interests, the types of human behaviors or people that I've encountered in the research so far. And I started writing them out. And then I looked at it, stood back, and there were 10 types. I thought, my goodness. So this is about 10 types of human. And the basic premise is grounded in a particularly, I think, fascinating reconceptualization of what the human brain is, the human mind, which is what the brain does, and therefore what or who we are. The old conception, Andy, is that, do you remember those old black and white films where you make a call, it goes to a central operator, she'll put a plug in and then she'll connect you to somebody else. Yeah. And that's what we thought the three and a half pounds of gray matter between our ears was basically. It was that a central operating uh, system. The modern conception of it is very different and it's it's much more like what I'm going to show you because this is a podcast no one can see, but I'm going to show Andy my iPhone. And so the modern view of the brain is that, in fact, it's much more like a smartphone with different apps. And each app is an evolutionarily evolved uh, set of functions and procedures and behaviors that has given us a behavioral and survival advantage. And so another way to look at the 10 types of human is at a series of apps that have actually evolved to give us certain advantages in order to survive, basically. So that's, that's the sort of premise of it. It gets kind of a bit more interesting than that once you start to put the people into the picture. Okay, so it's not necessarily that there's like, you're going to be putting people into categories and you're going to say, you know, oh, that person, they're type number six and that person, they're type number nine. But it's that like we all have all 10 of these apps installed on our iOS of our mind. And um, at times we activate all of them in different circumstances or situations. Or they are activated. You see, yeah. is it because the thing about it. Um, is that it, it's not necessarily a volitional thing. It's not about... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's okay, about, activate, activate number four now. Go. <laughs> you know, there is a film like where you've got these little people in your head and they pull levers and, oh, and you know, <laughs> stop the false crocodile tears. We need to get out of this problem, all of this kind of stuff. No, it's much more that certain cues... In the situation, this is a lot to do with uh, situational, so uh, social psychology. How are you going to behave? What are you going to do? And very often, it's not something you're conscious of. It's something that will happen. And then there are certain uh, behavioral roots and practices that stem from that. And so, you know, I suppose if we think about 
just to make kind of make it concrete what we're talking about one of the things that I was looking at at Harvard at this particular time I was very interested in this terrible practice called female genital mutilation FGM I couldn't understand how is it how is it that parents who love their children love their daughters could send them to be cut why would that, that happen the parents who send their girls their daughters for cutting are not necessarily monstrous parents no, at of all course not. yeah and so what you've got i think so how do we critique that how are we going to get a, a deeper understanding of what's happening and i think if you look at two of the types that I deal with in the book, okay? The two types are in, they're in conflict. On the one hand, you've got the nurturer and the nurturer is this evolved adaptive mechanism, which, which means that we ridiculously over prioritize our own flesh and blood, which in fact is, prioritizing our own genetic material so you've got these parents who want to look after and nurture and bring up the children and yet on the other hand you have got the parents who are deliberately inflicting almost unimaginable pain on their children and that's because there is a tension between what we call the nurturer and another of these modules, which I call the ostracizer. And human beings live in this particularly, since we evolved as a deeply complex social animals. When we, our ancestors left the thick verdant rainforests of Central Africa, it moved out in east into the savannas and it moving into the open savannas, very perilous existence in order to, to survive. They've adapted to a different type of social organization, which was an incredibly socially complex one where there was increasing uh, cooperation. Since that time, we have had this, this really interesting uh, human dilemma part of the human condition on the one hand we have a deep need to belong and that's why things like being unfollowed or unliked on social media hurts it actually does it does hurt on the other hand we need to police that belonging and we police that belonging using the tool one of the main tools is ostracism And so the research we did for the parliamentary inquiry and the main answer that came back to us, which surprised us, was not adherence to uh, religious belief or traditional beliefs or any of those reasons. Most prevalent reason for cutting their daughters was fear of ostracism, that if they didn't, the daughter and they would and their kinship group would would be blackballed and excluded from their community 
So here you have a tension between two things, between the nurturer who wants the best and wants to love their, their child, and you've got the ostracizer, which is acutely aware of social exclusion and social policing. And it's these tensions that I think are really, really interesting. It seems like this uh, theme that runs through a lot of the book is horrible things that people do to each other and and also like really selfless things that people do and sort of the whole spectrum of really extreme human behaviors and trying to understand what it is that pushes us to to do some of these things yeah i think so you know in my work i i sit as a judge uh in some of our higher courts i see the most awful stuff you know I, I deal with cases of uh, murder, rape, uh, uh, crimes against humanity, genocide, human trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people always say to me, how could you possibly deal with all of that? And I think one of the reasons is that at exactly the same time as you see these terrible things, you all, which is, you know, human beings at their worst, you also see some extraordinary things about human beings at their best who demonstrate uh, acts of courage and selflessness and the, the human spirit. And I suppose that's what, what the heart of the book is about, trying to, under, trying to understand it but also trying to to name it what is it what are these forces that are driving us to do that that and what is trying to protect us as well from the other side so you also talk about um this idea of cognitive load and how once we start worrying, caring, or just plain thinking of other people outside our family and familiar circles, we begin to load up our system. And this cognitive load acts as a break on our social ambitions. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it, it. I think if you look at how we've evolved, and there are there's some interesting thought experiments about this, that Princeton philosopher, Peter Singer, yeah. Singer realized that if you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, <clears throat> the way in which we live now, if you compare that to the evolution of our species, we have lived in these urban clusters for a, a nanosecond, a blink of an eye. And what we've done really before that is we've lived in very small social groups. And those social groups are our spheres and circles of concern. And there's a very interesting bit of research by uh, someone called Robin Dunbar, who's a professor at Oxford. What Dunbar worked out was that basically, we can't really cope with a cognitive load of more than about 150 people. That's it. Yeah. That's our kind of loop. So, you know, he says you could have 
thousands of Facebook or Twitter followers or friends or whatever. But really, it's about 150. That's called the Dunbar number. That's our real circle of concern. And it's because our resources are finite. We we can't actually cope with much more. And it's interesting, in my legal practice, I'm a barrister. When I joined, we had, I think I was 22nd or 23rd uh, barrister in our chambers. And we were literally like like a family and we all li- knew each other and some of us would go on holidays with each other and we'd socialise with each other, etc. You know, 25 years later, we've now got over 200. I don't know most of these people now who are in my organisation. And once you reach that figure of about 100, 150, it becomes impersonal. You don't, you, you just don't actually have much concern. It's very difficult to do so. Now, that's really interesting because what it suggests is that one of the factors that um, might have affected our lack of ability to um, support children in these uh, other countries is the fact that we are not used or not very good at having compassion over social distance. So that kind of physical distance and social distance actually might impact the level of our ability to give. And that's why in a lot of charitable appeals, we have um, a big annual appeal in the United Kingdom. What they've learned is if they want people to contribute, yes, you've got the essential work in the developing world but they always uh, mix it up with uh, charitable organizations and stories in close to home so Mm. that that draws people in because that's what we can can, uh, compute so what we're talking about is compassion and you and you're asking me about cognitive load and that's a really, really important subject, which I hadn't fully appreciated. One of the things that does happen is that people who do work, uh, whether they be doctors, nurses, fire, firemen, police officers on the front line, that is really what uh, social scientists call emotional labor and that emotion we have a finite amount of resources to cope with that and if if we exceed it i've seen it with some in fact with some of the people in the book some of the most incredible uh, people i've met ever uh, who work for ngos in the united nations in war zones in Central Africa, who got burnt out, who so threw themselves into their work, trying to save vulnerable people, that it it just destroyed their ability to cope. And it's what an American psychologist called Paul Slovic calls an utter failure of compassion. 
So we need we need to actually really look after ourselves. Yeah, I think at Harvard they used to call it self-compassion, which I I think is a good way to look at it. If you want to help others, you've got to actually be quite disciplined to help yourself and protect yourself as well. So that's a very interesting concept that I didn't know about till I started to research the book. So walk me through that. So we, uh, you know, parents, I think, want to raise compassionate kids. We want kids who care, who want to make a difference in the world, who want to contribute in a positive way to their community and beyond. Um, so how do we uh, how do we teach them self-compassion uh, so that they have the capacity to um, expand their compassion to include others as well? Yeah, I mean, that's... I think I think I think you mentioned the critical word. It's how do we teach them? And what is interesting, you know, the old conception of it was that, and there is a little bit of truth in this, don't get me wrong. That some people are more are born compassionate and some people are born. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, we call it here a bleeding heart liberal. Um <laughs> at Harvard, which is to I think they used to call me a soft and fuzzy. I I don't know quite well about that. I never quite quite knew what it meant. I just knew it wasn't good. They used to call me, oh, you're coming with this sort of, you know, live. We live in the real world, Dexter. Yeah, you. Yeah, oh, you're just, yeah, too soft. You're just too compassionate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So that's what they used to call it. Now, what's interesting (laughs) is that the modern research into compassion shows that. Compassion is hard, you know, it's a discipline, it's teachable, it's a skill, and that you can teach people that. One of the things that I think is so interesting from the research is that there was uh, intriguing uh, research work that was done into how it is that we can Uh, equip ourselves to have protection against that phenomenon that Paul Slovic talks about, about compassion, fatigue and burnout. And they did some experiments about um, looking at a video. And the video was footage of the most distressing thing, which was, um, I don't know whether you recollect, about 20 years ago, there was a big um, that there were these orphanages in Romania, in East Europe, mm. and there were it was a terribly, terribly uh, upsetting situation where there were um, hundreds of these children held in these orphanages in dreadful conditions. Yeah. And as a result of that, there were people... Uh, in Western Europe, also I think in the United States and Canada, who went and adopted some of these children. Yeah. And it, you know, there's also interesting research about the outcomes for some of those children. Um, but just to focus on the first part of it in terms of compassion, what the researchers found was that if you looked at those distressing scenes of children basically in cots and 
I think, chained or tied to beds and cots. I mean, it's a terrible situation. If you looked at those, uh, most uh, ordinary people are going to have uh, adverse reactions. Your, your blood pressure is going to go up. The cortisol level is going to go up. You're going to feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And all of this is measurable. And the, all the stress indicators are there. However, if you look at exactly the same video footage, but instead of just being a passive observer of it, a passive consumer of this human misery, if you go into it <clears throat> with the mindset, what could I do to help? How can I make a difference? What is it that I could contribute to this uh, situate a terrible situation? When you do that, what you're doing is it's a form of empathy, which is compassionate. You're saying, I actually want to try to make a difference. And when they when they measured those people, all the stress indicators were significantly lower. So I'm dealing with a case at the moment, dreadful, dreadful, dreadful case of awful things that have happened to children, which is very upsetting for um, witnesses and professionals who have uh, been involved in it. But I go into it with the mindset, how can I make this better? How can I find a solution to try to make things even a little bit less awful. Yeah. And that seems to make it, it's extraordinary, but that is you being shielded uh, by a compassionate approach. And so what parents or teachers or educators could do is to firstly instill in those teenagers and children they're working with and helping and talking with too that compassion is something we all have got and can develop and strengthen and we can use it to make a difference in the world for good and we can protect ourselves even in some of these difficult situations asking ourselves the question what can I do to make things even a little bit better. We're here today with Dexter Diaz talking about how to raise more compassionate, caring, and connected teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. It is almost impossible Andy, to change people's behavior on an individual level for a social phenomenon like FGM. And what you need, like with the goby fish, is you need what's called collective abandonment. You know, there's increasing a burgeoning body of research now. The research base is really extensive, showing, talking about teenagers, the dreadful negative effect of overexposure to social media. And yeah. some of the cases I've been doing where 
you've got particularly girls actually I, i'm not saying it's only gendered in that direction but particularly girls who their social media existence and persona is their life in a really unhealthy way and it it affects them dreadfully and it you know the mechanism is really important i think for parents and teachers to know and one of the things that uh, young law students often ask me actually is what cause should and this is the conversation i think that uh, you have yeah. with you know your your teenagers what cause should i follow and try and do something about what should be my mission my goal etc you know i'm a pretty empirical kind of guy i'm not very spiritualist i'm pretty grounded and scientific i'm a lawyer i like evidence you know in court all of that yeah. but it and it so this sounds a bit sort of west coast maybe if that's not too much of a stereotype <laughs> it might be so i apologize immediately to the whole western seaboard but you know what i would say is this that there is some strange process whereby you don't choose the cause but you are chosen want to hear the full interview sign up for a subscription today you get access to all the interviews i've conducted as well as new episodes weeks before the general public it's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at talking to teens thanks for listening